Hey everyone, welcome to the industry show. I'm your host, Nitin Bajaj, and joining me today is Susan Robertson of Sharpen Innovation. Susan, welcome on the show. Thank you, I'm really happy to be here. My pleasure. So tell us who's Susan. So who's Susan? Uh, I'll give you the 30 second personal and the 30 second professional, how's that? Professionally, I'm an innovation strategist, which means I, I consult with companies and individuals to help improve their creative thinking and their creative problem solving so that they are better at innovation, essentially. And personally, uh, I, I live with two little dogs named Roscoe and Edith, and I'm a very avid ballroom dancer, and I love to kayak. <laughs> so are we going to see some of that dancing? No, not today. <laughs> oh, well, well, the show ends here. Okay. <laughs> so tell us a little more about Sharpen Innovation. So Sharpen Innovation is a, a, a consultancy, essentially, and uh, I'm a solo entrepreneur, so it's just me. When I do need help, I tend to contract it out. I'm right, at least right now, not too interested in taking on employees. And I do a lot of corporate work, so I do a lot of uh, corporate consulting and organizational uh, work in terms of how to optimize your organization for creative thinking and innovation. And more specifically, I do a lot of training in creative thinking and problem solving processes because there are a few things that, that organizations tend to lack. If you look at um, Teresa Amable, who's a Harvard Business School professor or was, she's recently retired actually, she uh, came up with a model of how innovation happens and it takes sort of three things. And one of those is domain expertise. Mm -hmm. One of them is creative thinking skills. And one of them is motivation. At the intersection of those is where really problem solving and creative thinking happens. Most organizations have no lack of domain expertise. That's yeah. just not an issue. But they do tend to have a lack in creative thinking skills and also in motivation because the motivation isn't simply personal motivation. It's also the organizational dynamics that affect motivation. And there are often a lot of sort of hidden and unintended things that are going on in organizations that actually demotivate people in terms of their creative thinking and problem solving. So I tend to work in the, the skills and the motivation part to help uh, organizations and individuals enhance their creative thinking ability. Sounds like you have a lot of fun. It is fun work. It's really fun work. I'm, I'm really fortunate in that. That's awesome. You know, that, that brings me to this uh, thought. You had an illustrious career as a nine to five professional. You worked with some of the biggest Fortune 500 companies. Why make the switch to entrepreneurship? Uh, I think a lot of the reasons, maybe some of the same reasons that many entrepreneurs do, one, I got much more interested in a specific aspect of the work and the, um, the, the places where I was working before didn't allow me to focus on that specific aspect, which is the sort of creative thinking part. Uh, and also, I'm better on my own. I, I kind of chafe in a corporate structure, which is odd because a lot of my clients are corporate. So I understand their constraints and the, the issues and barriers and challenges that they have, but I, I'm better off not working within it. <laughs> so true. And you know, you mentioned you got interested in, in this space, but why specifically innovation and creative thinking? Well, when I was working in large corporations, I was in brand management and marketing, and I, I had regularly found myself in the innovation part of that work. So I was typically doing new product development. 
And I discovered over time, I had a few rounds of deciding I don't like my job anymore, I'm gonna go get a new one and I'd go find myself a new job. And then I would like it at the beginning and over time I would begin to not like it again and I would think, I'm gonna go find a new job. <laughs> and after about seven rounds of that, I finally recognized my pattern, which was as the, the product that I was working on grew into a more maintenance phase, mm -hmm. I began to like it less because I like the front end of development where everything is sort of nebulous and, and it's all, you know, it's figuring it out and making it clear and asking questions. That's the part I like. Mm -hmm. So what I was doing was continually finding myself a new job that put me back in that front end. Mm -hmm. And after I finally recognized my pattern, which took a while and it took some help from a career counselor, I'll admit, um, I decided that what I needed to do was find a job where I could stay in that part more often. So that's when I went to a consulting company and we consulted two brands and companies that were doing the same kind of work I'd done before, but in that, just in that front end piece, which is the part I really liked. And then within that, I got much more interested even in the, in the training of the creative thinking mm -hmm. skills and the organizational barriers around creative thinking. So the consulting company, what we tended to do was run projects mm -hmm. for companies. So we need a new product that does X. We would come in and run that project for them. But I got much more interested in doing the, I don't know if you call it the softer side, the people mm -hmm. side. I got much more interested in that. It's not really soft. It's difficult. But, <laughs> but, but that's what I grew interested yeah. in. And that's why I left the consulting company to go on my own so I could really focus on the part where I felt like, one, I enjoyed it the most, but also that's where I had the most value, I think. So you found your purpose now? I think so, yeah. I, I feel like I've really um, I found my place. That's awesome. Who's, who's your typical customer and, and how do they find you? Well, it's interesting because there's a bit of a, a dichotomy because mm -hmm. I have this, I have a corporate client yeah. and then I have a, a sort of an individual person uh, client that tend and they they tend to be quite different. So, the corporate work is often people who are charged with doing something like, let's change our culture to become yeah. more innovative. Mm -hmm. um, so that could be sometimes it's somebody in HR, sometimes it's somebody in an R and D role, sometimes there is an, a title of innovation or something mm -hmm. like that. So those are the people that tend to bring me in, and then of course I work across the organization to kind of affect it everywhere. So that's the corporate work. Uh, well, then also very related to that, I also do a lot of keynote speaking, sometimes for a corporation or sometimes for an association or a not-for-profit. And I think they all find me partially through word of mouth. Sometimes they find me on other podcasts or other kinds of ways. Um, and I do some you know, proactive outreach. And then there's a separate group that's individuals that I do masterminds for, and those those tend to be entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and people who just want to, what do I want to say, optimize their, their work, their thinking, their creative abilities to come to better results in their personal and professional lives. So that's a that tends to be a mastermind group, and they mostly find me through word of mouth um, mm -hmm. or or something like this. And who would you say should consider design thinking in terms of, you know, I'm thinking, do you have to be at a certain size and scale uh, to benefit from something like this? No, that's a short answer. No, <laughs> it's good for anyone, even an individual, even if you're an individual solo entrepreneur, mm -hmm. 
it's what, what design thinking or creative problem solving, those are two very related processes. And, and what they really are is simply a structured, repeatable methodology to create the best conditions for, for your best thinking. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what size or scale you are, you can do it on, on your own at your desk. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll, can I give you an example? Absolutely. We love examples. Okay, great. So one of the things I talk a lot about uh, in both my masterminds and in my corporate work is something called the negativity bias. And the negativity bias is a cognitive bias, which is a mental shortcut that all humans share. So sometimes when I say negativity bias, people think, oh, well, biases are individual or personal, and I don't have that one. Well, you're wrong about that. <laughs> Cognitive biases, which is a neuroscience principle, are these mental shortcuts that all humans share. So we all have all of them. And this particular one, the negativity bias, we all have. And the negativity bias is the phenomenon that negative experiences impact our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors more than positive experiences. Right. So if we have a, a tremendously emotional negative experience, that really affects us much more so than an equally emotional positive experience. Mm -hmm. It sounds counterintuitive, but research has proven repeatedly that this is true for all of us. And as a result, we are far more motivated to avoid negative mm -hmm. than we are to seek out positive. And if you think about why that is, it's actually a survival instinct. Mm -hmm. So think way back to when our pre-ancestors still lived in caves. Right. And let's imagine a little cave boy, we'll call him Grog, all right? <laughs> and imagine that Grog hears a rustling over in the bushes and he thinks, hmm, I wonder what that might be. And Grog wanders over to find out what was in the bushes. Unfortunately, rawr, it was a giant lizard and Grog is dead. Right. Now imagine instead we have a little cave girl, we'll call her Lucy. Mm -hmm. Lucy also hears a rustling over in the bushes, but instead of wandering over, Lucy instead runs away. And Lucy is the one who survives, right? And lives to pass on her genes to all of us. So we are all the product of people who ran away from uncertainty. Right. And this tendency to uh, assume uncertainty is danger and avoid it is alive and well in all of us today. That's the negativity bias. Mm -hmm. And the way that shows up, the way uh, you'll know when your negativity bias is kicking in is when you say or you hear, yes, but. Mm -hmm. in response to ideas. And now that you're conscious of it, you'll be shocked how many times you hear yes, but right. in a day. And the yes, but is the manifestation of us. Our brains are laser focused and lightning fast on recognizing that potential danger in an idea so that we can avoid it. So we hone in immediately on the problems in ideas instead of honing in on the potential in ideas. And this is a real issue in terms of creative thinking and innovative behavior. So the negativity bias is a huge barrier for individuals, for organizations. And the more people you have, the more negativity bias you have going on. Um, but even individually, you have the negativity bias. So one of the things I do is train people in specific creative thinking tools about how to get around that negativity bias. That's just one example of the kind of thing that I would do for both my my mastermind clients and my corporate clients. I love the example. 
And you know, one part of me is thinking that if if we didn't have the grogs that went out and and seek and explore and and be adventurous, we as as an entrepreneurial community wouldn't exist. Exactly. So, <laughs> so it's it's good to be curious, but it's also good to have some sort of a safety net. I would think. Well, right, and one of the tools I teach is uh, is what do I want to call it? A tool that allows you to be curious, explore ideas, and mitigate the risk at the same time. Can I talk about it? Oh, right, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah, okay. So the yes but is the instinctive response to ideas, right? And as entrepreneurs, we have on some level maybe figured out some ways to get around that, but that negativity bias still exists. And this is a very specific thinking tool that you can just turn on whenever you feel that negativity bias kick in. And again, the, the trigger is yes, but, right? So when you have your yes, but response trigger, what you want to do instead is something that I call GPS thinking. And GPS stands for great problem solving, nice. right? And it is a three-step process. So the first thing you do when you, when you sense the yes, but coming is for, don't say it. And instead, you want to consciously look for what might be great in that idea. That's the G, what might be great. And this is not the instinctive thing your brain does. Your brain is instinctively trying to push you to what are the problems, mm -hmm. but you have to consciously make the choice to first list what's potentially great, that's G. So once you've made a list of that, now you can move to where your brain is trying to take you the P problems, but with one very specific difference. And that specific difference is you want to articulate the problem in the form of a how-to question. So instead of simply saying, it's too expensive, instead you say, how can I make it more affordable? Hmm. And that one trick, that flipping of a problem statement into a question is a neuroscience brain hack hmm. that will dramatically improve your creative thinking. So that's step two, P problem articulated in the form of a question. Then step three solution is you now solve for the problems you identified by modifying the idea, mm -hmm. but keeping something about it that you thought was great. So you have permission in the solving part to change it in any way you want to, as long as you kept some aspect of it that was good. Yeah. You can keep as much or as little of the original idea as you want. So that's GPS thinking, what's great, what are the problems articulated as a how-to question and then solve for those problems by keeping something from the great list. And that tool is the foundational tool that I teach all my corporate clients, all my mastermind clients, anybody that says, how do I improve my thinking? That's where we start. And it's interesting because it's, it's not at all difficult to understand, mm -hmm. but it's very difficult to do Implement. on a regular basis. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, as you were saying that, one example that came to my mind is all the stand-ups and the improv guys, right? They use this implicit and, and explicit permission-based model of saying yes and. Same. So you're right. building on top of that. Right. You do have the permission from the other person to, to take it to yes. a different direction. Yes. It is. A, so the GPS, the GPS technique is a, what do I want to call it? It's an extension of mm -hmm. yes and. Because... Yes, and on its own, will the, the idea will grow to something that is completely out of bounds. And that's why it turns out to be funny in improv, because it, it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows until it's funny. Right. What happens in a business environment is if you yes, and without 
without permission to point out this idea isn't yet perfect, uh, it will grow out of control. Like it will grow to be too expensive or we can't do it in the time we have. And so the, the, the P part of GPS, the articulating the problems is important in a business environment so that you can have some real world criteria and it just doesn't grow to ridiculousness as it does in improv. So the GPS is a, I guess it's a modification of the, of the yes and tool that gives us permission to admit the idea is not perfect yet because most ideas aren't perfect when they're first born. I love the, the structure. I love the name because it's so specific and, and you immediately know what a GPS is. Right. And taking that into the business context from a creative thinking perspective. So I, I love that. So tell us, tell us about, you know, a lot of the work you do with your clients may not have immediate tangible results. In that sense, how do you define success? Well, a lot of the work I do actually doesn't have immediate tangible results because we're talking about improving people's thinking, which is hard to measure. And we're talking about changing your culture of your organization, which is hard to measure. Right. So, uh, so how do you define success? What we do in my corporate work is we, we have to find measures that measure the behavior change that we're looking for. And those are things like, you know, how many innovation projects do we have in the pipeline? How much time are people applying to innovative projects? So things that are a little squishier, but you, we have to try to figure out how to put measures on them. In terms of the individual mastermind clients, it's really, it, it has to be a self-assessment of, of, you know, are you, as, are you as a person growing professionally and personally, and do you feel like you're making a difference in your life and your business by the things that you're learning here? Susan, that, that's, that's really excellent. Tell me about, you know, the, this particular time that we are in where things are uncertain and companies tend to have two different mindsets. One where they go deeper and accelerate their work in research and development and some others kind of step back and slow down. What has been your experience and, and what kind of recommendations do you have? Well, I think it's difficult to say what's been the experience so far because it's not very long yet, but I will tell you, I'll tell you about a particular corporate client that I'm working with right now who I think has taken, um, I guess what I would say the best possible path of the paths that might be available to them right now. And they, they happen to be in the oil and gas industry, which kind of had a double whammy because yeah. they have the pandemic, but they also had the oil industry was just, there was a huge shakeup anyway, and oil prices actually went negative for a while. Yeah. So they had this double issue going on. So they, as a company, are in cost cutting mode, unsurprisingly. And that's, that's the only rational thing they can do. Right. However, they, they are being very careful to protect as much as they can their investment in innovation. So they have cut the budget some there, but they've made, I think, good choices about what to keep and what to cut. And they have made very clear to everyone, both internally and, and vendors like I am, mm -hmm. of what's, what's gonna stay, what's gonna be on hold, what's gonna go permanently. And in my opinion, of course, I'm just one person, but I think they've made the right choices about 
what has to go temporarily, what might have to go permanently, and what needs to simply be put on hold. So I think they're, they've done a very nice balancing act. And I think it is a balancing act. Uh, I think it would be very difficult for most companies right now to dive deeper and spend more on innovation. But making some really smart strategic choices about where you do spend what's available to you, I think, um, makes some sense. And in this case, what this particular company decided to continue to invest in is the the culture change that they were sort of in the midst of and they are doing their best to continue that work mm -hmm. because in the long term that is i think what's going to make the biggest difference to them now of course they're still running some individual innovation projects mm -hmm. and those are the ones that they think have the biggest will eventually have the biggest bang for the buck in terms of their investment in roi mm -hmm. but the long-term ROI on investing in the people side of it so that the innovation becomes more, or so the company comes, becomes more innovative seems to me a really smart choice. That's great to hear. In, in your work, you end up getting invited to keynote a lot of the conferences. Mm -hmm. What's been your most memorable one? My most memorable one? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Um, I'll tell you, uh, I, I spoke to a very large hospital that you would know the name of, but I'm, I'm not going to say. Um, but it was, it's a very large hospital system, mm -hmm. famous, you would know it. And they do some professional development for their entire staff on a regular basis. And they, they brought me in to basically their entire staff. So we obviously, we had to do it staggered a few times because they couldn't take everybody off the floor of the hospitals to come and do it. So we did it three different times. And they clearly had some employee engagement challenges hmm. because the many of the people they were forced to attend, I think. And oh, wow. so they sat in the back as far back as they possibly could. And the first thing they did when they sat down was pull out their phone and start poking oh. off. And I thought, oh, okay, this is not the best circumstances. But, but for the most part, I managed to engage them and get them involved. My keynotes tend to be very interactive. A lot of keynotes are just, you know, a person talking. Mm -hmm. And while I do some talking, I try to do some teaching. Uh, I, I actually call it consulting from the stage. That's mm -hmm. what I call my keynote speaking because I do make it interactive. So I, I encourage them to engage in the activities we were doing which typically entailed talking to a neighbor and doing some some problem solving mm -hmm. techniques and okay. I, for the most part i think I, I got them all engaged most of them put down their phone and did it and i later got really really very good feedback from the folks who ran it and said that was better engagement than we ever get so that was a win nice. <laughs> well i do know one thing about you is you love a challenge so <laughs> so tell us one thing generally in life tell us one thing that you regret not doing you know i probably regret not going out on my own sooner than mm -hmm. i did it, it, i i came to it relatively late in life and i probably would have um come into my own i guess a little earlier if i had if I had not been so afraid, because I think it was all probably fear-based. And tell us one thing that you 
did and you regret doing it. So I have one thing that it's sort of, I sort of regret it in one sense and in another mm -hmm. sense I don't, but I'll tell you about it. I, at one point in my career, I had mentioned that I worked for a consulting company right. and I worked for that company for 12 years, I think. Mm -hmm. And then I decided to become a partner. Mm -hmm. And uh, which meant I bought into the company and I became a business partner with the person who had been essentially the solo owner of the company prior to that. And it was a problem. Uh, it turned out that our values and our ethics were not in alignment. And as a result of that, I finally left the company. So that's why I say I don't regret it because that was probably the prompt to get me out on my own but it was a few years of really unpleasant stuff. So my learning from that is if you're going to go into business with a partner, be very careful about who that person is and figure out ways in advance to figure out if your philosophies are really in alignment, because if they're not, it's a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Um, that can be tough. Let me ask you this in terms of, you know, you go into companies, organizations work with individuals and you create a change, a positive change in them. Is there a company or a project, a leader that you worked with that has changed you in a significant way? I actually, I think I mentioned to you, and this isn't necessarily a corporate leader, but I mentioned that at one point when I was sort of spinning in my corporate career, mm -hmm. not figuring out my pattern, I went to see a career counselor. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the best things that ever happened for me because she was tremendously good at what she did. Mm -hmm. And a lot of career counselors, I think, uh, they just give you a battery of these pre-designed tests and then they read you the results and based on that they tell you what you should do. <laughs> she didn't work like that at all. She was much more a counselor in the true sense of the word mm -hmm. and I think customized what she had me do based on what she learned about me mm -hmm. and she really helped me figure things out in a way that I think I would not have without her without her help. So. Um, you know, in the sense for me, she was a leader and a mentor and a coach and a, a wonderful, a wonderful boon to my career, even though you might not look at her and say she's a leader in the traditional sense, because yeah. she was a, she was a private coach, mm -hmm. but she was, wow, she helped me a lot. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to find people that can, that you can relate to that can put you in where you need to be. Yeah. And, and, and we need that. And, you know, as we go through this entrepreneurial journey, which has its series of ups and downs, when you have fallen, what has helped you get back up? For me, I think it's the recognition that it's still better than working in a nine to five corporate job yeah. for me. Yeah. And I know that's not the case for everyone. I obviously know lots of people in corporate work and they like it and it suits them and it's great for them. But for me, it's not. And I think that uh, I spent long enough in, in corporate to know that. So when, when the, the entrepreneurial thing has a, you know, a bad moment, which of course it does often, <laughs> I have to remind myself still better than the, than the alternative for me. Yeah.
Yeah, and you know, one way to look at this is if we didn't have the downs, we wouldn't appreciate the ups as much. True. <laughs> so talking about challenges, if you had 30 days to learn something, what would you take on? Neuroscience. Not that I think I could learn it all in 30 days, but I'm very interested in neuroscience and I'm always kind of reading about it. I'm reading popular articles, right? I'm not diving in as deep as I would like because I don't have time, but I try to bring those neuroscience principles into my work because it's been very illuminating, even for me, as I've learned more about it, that it's telling me why the tools that I have always used, mm -hmm. why they work. Like in the past, I knew these tools worked, so I used them, mm -hmm. but I didn't know why they worked. And it's the learning about neuroscience that's helping me start to understand, oh, this is why this tool mm -hmm. works. And I think now when I'm teaching that tool to people, if they can understand a little bit of the why behind it, it becomes stickier. And we're more likely to, you know, to, to learn it, first of all, but also to put it into action if we understand the why, as opposed to, well, just because Susan said so. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's amazing and it, sometimes it also freaks me out because what if we can go inside our own brains and figure ourselves out right that, that just it's so interesting but it's also scary to me <laughs> it's, it's both fascinating and terrifying <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we talked about this a little bit uh, i want to see if there is a, a different example here what has been your favorite failure something that didn't work out as you expected, but ended up helping you. you. You gave us one example. I want to see if there is another one. There is another one. <laughs> we all got failure stories, right? It's just finding the courage to tell them, I think. Um, I was fired from one of my corporate jobs, which was a hugely humbling experience. And at the time I felt kind of humiliated and ashamed and it took me a long time to ever admit to anyone that, you know, I've, I've been fired from a corporate job before. Mm -hmm. um, but in hindsight, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it was, again, one of those things that prompted me to make a change because that's one of the things that prompted me to go find that consulting job, which ultimately led me to sort of finding my real purpose in life. And I might not have done that if I hadn't um, been forced out of the comfortable spot that I was in. So while I didn't enjoy it at the time at all, in hindsight, um, it was a good thing. And also in hindsight, it helped me sort of, uh, I, I can now look back and understand why I was fired and actually realize that it was the best thing for me to not be in that organization. Because the reason I was fired was because I, again, it was a values issue for me. I, 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 it was in a company where everyone was dramatically, tremendously, significantly overworked. To the point it was affecting people's personal lives and everybody on my team was in the midst of either getting a divorce or it was it was really a problem and i tried to alleviate that problem by discussing it openly with people more senior than i was and that was not well liked and that's ultimately why i got fired and i decided in hindsight you know that's okay with me if that's the reason i got fired <laughs> well Thank you for sharing that. I know it takes a lot of courage, even though it has been several years. It's, it's still something that, you know, it takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable. So thank you for doing that.
And uh, it's great to hear that you were able to you know, look back at it. One, it put you on the course of success, of finding your own journey. Right. But also, you know, you're able to look back at it and, and learn from the positive impact of it. So, you know, when, when you do the work you do, working with people and, and their emotions and the deep-rooted stigmas, problems, biases, this is not easy. Right? It is fun in many ways, but it's not easy. What keeps you inspired and what motivates you? It is the people, actually. Uh, I, I had someone ask me not very long ago, do you run into people who just don't want to do what you're asking them to do? And the truth is, yes, that happens, but it's fairly rare. Most people see the value in sort of growth and self-improvement. And when, when people say things to me like, that changed my life. And I, I've had people say that numerous times, like you've changed my life. Wow, is that powerful? That's, that's a, that's a <laughs> there's nothing better than that for me. So it is, it is the people who keep motivating me. That is awesome. What is one thing that you have learned in the last five years? What, what have you become good at saying no to? I've become a little better, although I'm not perfect, uh, about saying no to things that, uh, that don't help me in some way. And not to say that I'm, I'm not generous, I am. When, when I wanna do philanthropic work, I do it. But there are too many times when people come and propose something to you, uh, trying to make it appear that it's philanthropic in some way when actually it isn't. It's just self-serving for the other person. So I've gotten a little better at saying no to that, although I'm still not as good at saying no as I'd like to be. Well, I'm sure dance is not one on the list, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned this counselor that uh, helped you in a, in a great deal of ways. Have you used other coaches or mentors regularly. I, I am almost never not in some sort of coaching program. Mm -hmm. So over the, and that's been mostly since I've been in my own business. Cause when I worked for other people, I didn't have, I didn't have the discretion to make those budget choices, although I was always pushing for it. So I did some of it uh, when I was in corporate and in, in my uh, previous consulting career, but I've used several uh, business coaches and I've, just recently, like about a week ago, completed a, a keynote speaker training to improve my keynote speaking. So I'm, I'm always trying to kind of, mm -hmm. you know, do better, get better, learn more. Where do you find these coaches? You mentioned specifically business coaches, but also something to do with speaking and presentation. Are there certain sources or is this word of mouth? Uh, you know, I... I think a lot of word of mouth. I'm in several speakers groups, like there's a National Speakers Association. So I, one of them that I did fairly recently, I got, I found through there. Um, others, you know, I found them through their own marketing or, you know, their Facebook ads, I guess. So a variety of ways, I guess I found them. Great. Now, this, this is a, a really tricky question and probably the most difficult one. What do you do for fun? <laughs> well, I dance, as I've already said. I do as much of that I can, although there's not a lot of that right now. 
Um, I play with my little dogs. I like to read. I don't read a lot of, uh, surprisingly, I don't read a lot of business books. <laughs> you get enough of that. <laughs> I read a lot of fiction. Um, and in particular, I kind of like sci-fi. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I do some kayaking. As I said, I love that. I own a kayak. And so I, I do as much of that as I possibly can. And I do some rollerblading. Mm. Um, and occasionally bike riding, although right now my bike has a flat tire. So <laughs> until I get that fixed, biking is out. <laughs> well, Susan, this has been an absolute fun. I Thank really you. enjoyed this time and I'm sure so will our audience. Thank you so much for taking the time. We learned a lot. Those examples were great. And we look forward to getting you back on the show at a future date. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. I've been glad to be here. Our pleasure. Thanks. Uh,